Welcome to the Sisters in Crime Writers Podcast. Everyone has a unique writing journey, so join us for conversations about those journeys from the writers themselves. This is Julie Henricus, the Executive Director of Sisters in Crime, and I am thrilled to welcome Amanda Flower to the podcast today. Amanda is a USA Today bestselling and Agatha Award-winning author of over 45 mystery novels. Her novels have received starred reviews from Library Journal, Publishers Weekly, and Romantic Times, and she has been featured in USA Today, First for Women, and Women's World. She currently writes for Penguin Random House, Berkeley, Kensington, and Source Books. In addition to being a writer, she was a librarian for 15 years. Today, Flower and her husband own a farm and a recording studio, and they live in Northeast Ohio with their five adorable cats. Amanda, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really honored to be on the Sisters in Crime podcast, so I'm a little geeking out a bit. (laughs) (laughs) You're so kind. I'm geeking out too because, um, I, you know, we're Facebook friends. So I see you as you're doing deadlines and as you're living your life and as you're doing everything. And, and for folks listening, she is a very prolific writer. Um, but she doesn't make it look easy. She, (laughs) she tells people that this is hard and I'm on a deadline and my husband brought me cookies because I haven't stood up in three hours and, and things like that. And I want to talk about that. Mm -hmm. Um, but let's start at the beginning. Um, when did you say to yourself, I want to write a book? I was actually 11. So, um, going, so I was 11 going into sixth grade. So it was the beginning of sixth grade and my English teacher said, we're going to write a story about, um, what you did over your summer vacation. And I went to a private school and it seems like, all the other kids did really cool stuff. And I just went to like kind of this rinky dink amusement park close to where I live. Uh, Like they went to like Europe and Florida and all these, you know, crazy places in my mind. So I wrote a story and um, I talked about going to this amusement park, which has since closed. And um, the truth in the story is my brother and my best friend, we went on the Ferris wheel together. And my story, I said the Ferris wheel burst into flames and my brother fell out and he was like hanging on the side. Um, and we, I still live near Cleveland. <laughs> and I think if that actually happened, it would have made the Cleveland news and everything. Um, so what happened was the teacher wasn't mad that I essentially lied. Like it wasn't it was not a true story. She laughed and all my classmates laughed. And I just was like, oh, this is, this is it. This is what I want to do. I want to make stories and make people happy and laugh and, you know, feel good. And so I went home and told my dad, uh, who was an electrical engineer, he had like a pocket protector, a slide rule, like he was, (laughs) you know, hardcore math guy. And he was just like, I think you're going to do it. That's great. But we need to sit down and make a plan for you to be able to support yourself um, until you do that. And they never, like, never once was he like, 
get married or like that wasn't even in his realm of possibilities. Like you're going to take care of yourself. So we made um, a spreadsheet and because my dad loved Excel and we went through all these different careers and we landed on librarian. So I decided at 11, I was going to be an author librarian. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. So it, it was very like, yeah, it was very planned out how I was going to do this. And it's incredible to me, like all these years later, I retired from being a librarian in 2018 that I actually executed a plan I made when I was in sixth grade with the plan I made with my dad. Unfortunately, my father didn't live to see the execution of the plan, but I know that he's aware that it got done. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. What a wonderful gift to give a creative child to a, uh, not saying that's not possible, but saying we got to figure out how you can take care of yourself while you're doing this and maybe do something in your field. So let's talk about that. I mean, that's, that's such a great conversation yeah. to have with creative people. Yeah. Both of yeah. my parents were like really supportive of it. Um, they, when I was a kid, I was always entering like short stories in middle school and high school. Once I made that decision and they, you know, they would read my short stories and they would comment on them what I could do better, but it, you know, also it was a very like, you're a wonderful writer, like a parent would be. It wasn't like a critical read, but occasionally they would give suggestions. So I'm very, they both passed away when I was younger. And I just feel very lucky that even if I didn't have them for a long time, that they were my parents because they were the best yeah. parents for me. Yeah, no, they sound wonderful. Um, so, you know, 11, you're going to be a librarian <laughs> author. Um, how did you build your writing craft? I mean, did you, because librarian science, that's, that's a lot of study and work. And, uh, you know, I mean, that's a, that's quite the journey. Yeah. Um, so how did you, you know, did you take classes? How did you build your writing craft? Well, I did, you know, I had the intention of going to graduate school to get my master's in library science right after college. But you can really, to do that, you can get any undergraduate degree because the only degree to actually be a librarian is a master's. So I, I um, majored in English and studied writing and took writing classes in college. Um, and then I think more than anything is I gave myself homework every week. Like I had like starting probably when I was a teenager, I would say, you know, write like, you know, 500 words this week. And now that makes me laugh because I have to write so many more <laughs> now. But like building that discipline really set mm -hmm. me up for when I'm on deadline now being disciplined. Um, mm -hmm. But I was also that kind of kid that drove all the other kids crazy because I would finish my homework. And if the teacher didn't collect it, I'd be like, weren't you going to collect the homework? Like, I worked really hard on it. <laughs> and then all the kids were like, you're such a nerd. But like, I just, I don't know, like, I have always had like, and I think that goes back to my parents. I've always had like a really strong, like, work ethics. Like, you just... And I've always, I don't even, even at a young age, I viewed writing as a craft. Like you're not going to get better until you repeat and repeat and repeat and repeat. And I, mm -hmm. I look back on my very first book and it was a, it was a good book. Um, I'm proud of that book. But then I look at, you know, my latest book and 
I couldn't have written that, you know, in my 20s when I wrote the first book. <laughs> no, I mean, it is a craft. You get better and better over time um, and keep pushing yourself. And yeah. I want we're going to talk about that in a little mm-hmm. while because you've been pushing yourself in different directions <laughs> yeah. recently, which is so inspiring. But why crime fiction? You know, that goes, you know, a lot of this goes back to my parents. And I think because they died when I was so young, like a lot of, I feel like sometimes stuff is more imprinted on me because like I really Mm -hmm. hold on to what I remember. Um, But my mom loved mysteries. So we went to the library every week and we would take tote bags full of books to return and then we get tote bags of books to fill. So like I was being a librarian was not a hard stretch because I was one of those little kids and my mom put me in story hour and I did summer reading club every day. Like the library was part of my life already. Um, So she loved mysteries and she always had a stack next to her bed. And now I can't believe it that she used to read like four or five novels a week. Plus she was like a Presbyterian minister like at the time when I was a little kid, she was the only woman in her presbytery. Um, and she was the first one in her presbytery. She was actually the first one woman to get a master's of divinity from her theolo- theological seminary. So she's like a trailblazer wow. herself. Yeah. Um, but she did that and she was married. She was a pastor of a church and she had two little kids and she still read four books a week. And I can barely, like, I have books, like, I can't seem to do that. Like, I, if I read one, two books a month, I'm like, yes, I got to read two fun books, you know? <laughs> uh, so so I, I read, um, when I was a kid, I read a lot of Babysitter Club. And I really liked the Babysitter Club mysteries. And then... There wasn't, now there's like kind of mysteries for young adults, but there wasn't really young adult fiction when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. So I jumped right like to like, I was reading, taking books from my mom's stack, like Sue Grafton, I'm like 13, you know, uh, Erlene Fowler, I loved at that age, Donna Andrews, like all of those people. So when it was time to write a book, like it wasn't even a conscious decision. Like it was just like, it was going to be mystery. And I remember when I met with my agent person the first time, I was like, I will write whatever you ask me to, as long as it's a mystery. Like that is really, <laughs> that's, it's what I love the most. So. <laughs> well, and you've explored so many different subgenres within the mystery field. Yeah. Um, you know, you've written for young adults, you've written cozies, you've written historical, and 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 part of that feels like it's pushing yourself and also, you know, you you're, you get these opportunities, you're like, sure, I'll do that. I mean, do you have um, a particular type of mystery you prefer writing or? I don't, I mean, not- I mean, I, I guess I would say cozies are always my first love. Um, I just, because I... I love writing humor and, um, and I think people, everyone in general, like there's something funny about everyone. And I love to write about that quirks and stuff. So I don't think I'll ever stop writing cozy, but you know, I've done these other things because opportunities have have come to me and I just feel like in order to keep my cozies, at a high caliber, 
challenging myself and other subgenres will teach me things about writing that I'll just continue to get better. So, um, and I also really, I wrote the the children's, the middle grade trilogy, you know, a few years ago because there wasn't really anything for that age group. Mm-hmm when I was a kid and I was just really wanted that kind of book, you know, I jumped to like reading Patricia Cornwell instead of, you know, (laughs) some of that stuff is scary, you know, for like a 12 year old. And I was like, Whoa, this is like very graphic. How they dissect a body. And, but I still read it. Cause I was just, I love the crime fiction. Um, and so I would have loved a book like that when I was that age. And then historical, I love, um, a lot of my cozies have some tie to the past, either either the recent past or the, you know, somewhere in the 19th century. And it just seemed like a natural transition, you know, and the opportunity when a publisher asked me to, you know, write quote, a bigger book. Not that cozies aren't big books. I don't want to give that impression whatsoever because right, right. every book, honestly, is equally hard. Like, I don't think... You know, my most recent book um, was a historical and it was very hard, but, you know, all the cozies made me cry too, <laughs> trying to figure them out. You still have to figure out the plot and everything. <laughs> well, a bigger book, you know, as just to to talk about that is because uh, cozies don't always get the respect they deserve yeah. within um, within the publishing world. I they are that. a mainstay, though. I mean, a lot of mm-hmm. publishing houses, their cozy lines are what what keep the money coming in. Um, but a bigger book tends to be uh, straight mystery, mystery suspense, historical mystery. So we'll have d- different reading groups mm-hmm. from different areas. Not that cozies don't, but um, it's a great opportunity to sort of expand and to build mm-hmm what you're doing. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, some people have told me with this new book, they're like, Oh, I went back and looked at your other books. So if I can turn some historical readers or like bigger book readers into cozies, that's a win for all of us cozy authors, because I really, I really adore them. Like I love, like, I love everything about them, the characters, the animals, the, the tropes that we use, like, it's just, you know, sometimes I feel like my own life is a cozy mystery without the murder. Like it's very like real <laughs> life somehow, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, can I go back a little bit to when you were an undergrad and you were taking writing classes, mm-hmm. were they supportive of you as a mystery writer or were there issues with you not being a literary writer um, when you were in college? Oh my gosh. I'm so glad you asked that. Um I, it depended on the professor. So some of the professors were really supportive. However, my creative writing teacher, um, who I don't even remember her name. This is, you know, I graduated from college like 20 years ago. Um, and she wasn't like full-time faculty. She was an adjunct. So I don't remember her name, but she hated my writing. And because it, I always... You know, I think some people are born with a writing voice and I'm one of the lucky people that was, but I think you can also make a writing voice. Like, I think you can build it as a craft, but my voice has been pretty much consistent since I was a teenager. So she did not like my voice as a writer and she would read 
my stuff in front of the class and tell uh uh you know the class why it was kind of drivel and that sort of thing. Um and I think so for example she I remember her talking about she had a literary agent and she had like one short story published in the Atlantic Monthly. That that's what I was so she was definitely like in the literary lane. Um, which is not what I wanted. Like, of course I want a literary agent, but I was, I knew I was not Lennox monthly writer. Um, I wanted to be a writer that had a career and like, this was my job. And, uh, and I've always been really supportive of popular fiction. She was not. So I think when something like that happens, you can either retreat and say, oh, this person's right. I'm a terrible writer. Why am I writing things that are just silly? Or you can get mad, which is what I did. <laughs> and I didn't get mad. Like, I never said anything to her. Um, you know, I I never. But what I did was that it spurred me on to write my first novel. So I started writing Made of Murder when I was 20 in my free time between classes when I was living on campus because I was like, oh, I'm going to prove this person wrong. And now I can't remember her name. <laughs> so, but like, in a weird way, as upset as that made me, like, it made me like, feel the urgency of, if I'm going to do this, I why am I waiting till I graduate college, graduate grad school? Like, let's, let's do it, make the time. And like I said, I was just writing like 500 words a week. But like, it was that start, you know. I think what you just said is so worth unpacking a little bit because a bad workshop leader or a bad class can derail you Mm -hmm. as a writer. Uh, And, and I, I can't think of how many people don't use it to, to fuel (laughs) their writing. They say, oh, this person must know because they're teaching this class and they're right. Mm -hmm. So if you are interested in writing genre, you got to find people who support genre writing. Right. Right. Um, You have to find Uh, that right class, that right instructor. You know, Um, I went to a really small, like liberal arts college. This was the only creative writing instructor they had. Um, and, you know, if I was going to take creative writing, it was that class. And um, so I didn't really have a lot of options, but I just knew, I just knew she was wrong. Like, and I, you know, and it might have been because I made that decision when I was 11 years old and I had so much support from teachers on the way up because mm-hmm. I was always writing stories and sharing them with my teachers, you know, and I was getting all these awards in English and things like, oh, and this was really the first time, like, someone was like, oh, you can't write. And I was like, eh! like 80 other people said I could. So you must be like some kind of outlier lander yeah. or something. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so I, I just was more angry and I was like, I'm going to start writing my book. And I did. <laughs> you talked about your writer's voice. Can you, can you explain what you mean by that? So when a writer is writing, um, I think all writers have like a distinctive sound. It's the words you choose. It's how you construct sentences. Um, in my case, it's humor, um, is one of the things, 
Um, although my most recent book wasn't super humorous by historical, but there were still moments of levity in there. Um, and it's, it's just, it's this thing, like just when you're, when you're talking to someone, you, you know, when you're talking to a friend, you recognize their voice. And of course it's the sound and things, but they say things a certain way. And you're like, oh, that sounds like something Sally would say because it's, you know, so, you know, so her. And um, I think when people especially read my cozies, I feel like you can pick up any of my cozies and know that that's like an Amanda Flower cozy. Um, the historicals are a little bit different because it deals with heavier subject matter. But um, I think there's still there's still me in it. And I think every writer, like if you think about someone like, you know, JK Rowling or something like that, she has a very distinctive voice. Um, or, you know, C.S. Lewis is a very academic voice, that sort of thing. So it's how you sound on the page. Um, are you, I want to talk about the, well, let's talk about the historical mm -hmm. now. And then I want to talk about your process because okay. you do write, between like four and six books a year, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah. So we're going to talk about how you do that. Yeah. But let's talk about the historical. Um, because I could not stop for death. Mm -hmm. Emily Dickinson is the protagonist. She is, yes. Um, talk about how you came up with this idea and, and some of the challenges you put forth um, for yourself in writing it and how you, you know, because we had a conversation yeah. about this a little bit um, and how you want to make sure you got it right and what, what steps you took towards that. Yeah. So I came up with the idea um, on a car ride to Iowa. My husband has family in Iowa and we weren't married yet. So this was like 2019. We weren't even engaged. I was, I was the girlfriend going to meet the family kind of thing. And uh, we were driving across country and I just was like talking to him um, about this concept of, you know, publishers wanted me to write something, a bigger book, you know, that whole concept. So I'm, you know, spouting off all these ideas and I was like, well, thrillers are big books, but I just don't feel like I can write, you know, at the time it was like all like the girl on the train and kind of was like, I just you know, I don't think that's me. Like that was, that's like a huge jump from cozy. And I don't want to be in a dark place personally <laughs> that long, as long as it takes you to write a book. Uh, so I was like, no. And then I was like, well, historicals, you know, I love Charles Todd and Anna Lee Huber's books. And I was like, and I always have history. So I was like, and I, and I was a history minor and uh, I was a little bit of a history geek. And I was like, well, you know, the bet most my specialty or the most I know about is 19th century American history. It's always like the Civil War has been really interesting to me and leading up to the Civil War. Um, and in 2016, I had a book come out called Crime and Poetry, which was the first in the magical bookshop mysteries. Mm -hmm. And there was five books in that series. And each book, uh, the clues were um, given to the sleuth through her magical bookshop and they were found in 19th century literature. And in the first book, Crime and Poetry, Emily Dickinson's poetry supplied the clues that eventually solved the murder. 
So I knew a lot about Dickinson. I'm sitting there and I was like, oh my gosh, no one's written a book with Emily Dickinson as a sleuth. I can't believe this. So I'm on Amazon on my phone and uh, David, my now husband's driving. And I'm just like, no one's like, how can I be the only one who wrote? Like, I was like absolutely shocked because there's like Jane Austen mysteries. There's the Brontes. Like, I'm like, what? Like, I mean, I know she was a recluse, but like not her whole life. Um, so then I made that decision. My agent happens to call me probably about something unrelated while we're on this trip. I picture the idea. She loves it. She says, write it for me. And then I kind of like stop and have to pause because I realized, you know, the best year to do this book would be 1855. It's before she's a recluse. Her father's in Congress. He's a um, member of the Whig Party. And everything everyone's talking about is slavery. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. As a white author, I was like, this feels like super heavy. And this was even, this was 2019. So this is before 2020 when really like the social reckoning was happening. Like I was already like, oh boy, like this is, this is a hot, a hot thing to touch. And at the same time, I was like, but I think it's important to write about. It's important to like, I don't think people really realized, like, I feel like they just thought it was like North and South, but there was like so much gray, not that the gray was good. Like there shouldn't really be a gray on the issue of slavery, but like the people living then rationalized being in the middle for whatever reason. And the Dickinsons are in that camp. They're kind of in the middle. Her father was a Whig and the whole, the Whigs disintegrated with the election of Abraham Lincoln because they wouldn't pick a side. So after once the Civil War, there's no Whig party to this day because you can't with such a big thing, you can't just be like, you do you, you do you. Like, it's just, it's not morally correct. So um, I just think it's a really interesting time in American history. And of course, because I knew a lot about American history, I'm like, oh my gosh, now we're like, this is really close to the Fugitive Slave Act. This is this is pretty scary territory. And if I write about Emily Dickinson in 1855 and ignore the issue of slavery, that felt irresponsible. So I was like, all right, I'm going to go for it. So um, that was the proposal I wrote and sold to Penguin. And once it sold, I spoke to my editor and I was like, I really think we need to have um, authenticity readers read this. And because I'm, I'm not African-American and this is a very sensitive topic. Obviously, my two protagonists, which is Emily and her maid, are white, but they're African-American characters that really talk about the position they are in. Um, and a lot of my characters that are Black are freed slaves or they were born into freedom. They never were a slave, but there's still constant fear. Mm -hmm. um, and I wanted to get it right. So they agreed and they had two different authenticity readers read it. And um, and they had me change a couple small things. It wasn't anything like like huge, but things that 
um, they had me change name and they had me capitalize the word black, like things that I didn't even occur to me. Um, but so it made it, I made it, I felt so much better when the book came out, but I, I was worried, but the reception in that front has been really wonderful. I've, I've gotten one not nice email from someone, uh, that I think, um, might be a tiny bit racist, <laughs> but other than that, <laughs> um, well, there's no such thing as a tiny bit right, racist. Exactly. Right? Like I was trying to like, not that that person would be listening to our podcast, but like someone that, um, was upset, uh, with, uh, the whole, the whole thing, but you know, by and large it's been good. And I was expecting that to be honest. Um, you know, I've had cozies in the past with gay characters and I'm like, oh, you know, here come the emails, that kind of thing. So I'm just expecting when I put something right. like that out there that someone's going to have issues. <laughs> well, writing historical requires what you talked about in so many ways. And I'm so grateful for you for talking about this because the authenticity readers, sensitivity readers, you know, what, all of these different voices so that you're not centering your lived experience in a book that uh, needs to have other other points of view that are, are real and authentic and not harmful mm -hmm. <laughs> um, is 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 important. So I'm glad that you talked about that. I mean, that's a, um, that's a step that, that more and more, I think people are realizing need to be taken. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, and I was really nervous about asking the publisher cause I'm like, Oh, you know, in my mind, I'm not one of their like big time authors. I'm like, are they going to pay the money? So I actually, my agency found one, um, for me, like kind of as like a backup that we were going to hire separately if the publisher wouldn't pay for it. Cause I felt it was that important. And you know, thankfully they thought it was that important, but they did it with two different people. So I'm grateful for that, but it wasn't something I was going to let the book go out in the world without that perspective, having taken a look at it. Yeah, that's great. That's great. And it's great advice for, for folks. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Historical, I, I've said this before on this podcast, I give historical writers all the credit in the world because if you get the cap wrong, <laughs> you're going to get emails. I mean, it, yeah. it requires um, that level, never mind the socioeconomic issues they bring up. It bring, it's, it's people who read historicals are very rabid readers mm -hmm. of what they want. Um, and she's also not, Unknown. I mean, yeah. more people, I think, know her name than know mm -hmm. about her, but she's not unknown. I live in Massachusetts. Oh, so. yes. <laughs> I can't wait. We definitely to know her. about Emily Dickinson yeah, here. Yeah, I cannot wait um, to go to her house. I didn't, because it got closed for the pandemic right when yeah. I signed the contract, but I am so excited to go there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's pretty wonderful. Um, so, Amanda, you write so much. And, and I will say, you know, I love that you said earlier, all books are hard to write. Mm -hmm. 
That's true. <laughs> let's let's add the extra oomph for the historical. Yeah. You're writing between four and six books a year. At this point, you have three publishers. You've had more in the past. So, I mean, this is such an evolving business. Yeah. Um, and I think you're you're somebody who is with your agent who you've mm-hmm. been, she's been your agent forever, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You are navigating. Years. You're like in the ship and you're navigating it together. <laughs> yeah. Um. But how do you plot, like, tell me how you plan these deadlines and you get these books written. Um, so when, yeah, like my agent just called me like an hour ago. Um, cause we're talking about like, uh, Kensington once more, my candy shop book. So we're like, okay, so what do you have due and what is like, when is like realistic that you can get things done? So, you know, I just like plan way out. And luckily, you know, the publishers that I'm with now are let me um, kind of say like, this is when this is the earliest I can get it done. I would prefer it'd be like a month later that it's due um, just so that I, you know, you don't have, I don't have a nervous breakdown (laughs) or something like that. So I just have to plan and figure it out. But something that, um, so like in 2019, I wrote nine books and that was, I had, so I, at the end of 2018, I retired from being a librarian and honestly, um, you know, I wasn't, I didn't get, I wasn't engaged. I wasn't married. So, you know, now you're paying for your own health insurance. Now you're like, Mm -hmm. those are like real life, scary things. And it's honestly, for all of you that are, you know, now I get health insurance for my husband, honestly, but for like a year, two years, I paid my own health insurance and it's expensive, you know, and it's not great health insurance either. Like (laughs) to be honest, (laughs) Um, but it's really expensive so I was scared and all these opportunities were coming at me and I just said yes to everything. And that year was so hard because it was two, nine books. It's just, it's not sustainable. Mm-hmm. Um, and so kind of after that year, my agent and I had a heart to heart and I was feeling like, oh, like I can pay my health insurance. I'm going to be fine. Um my agent just like, we're just going to have to adjust. So going forward, we're trying to pick which is the best route to go and, you know, which series people love. And then also which series that I wanted to continue, um, from a practical standpoint, um, you know, which publishers do I love writing for? So mm-hmm. those ultimately, you know, helped me make those decisions. And, um, you know, we just had to do it what was best for my mental health, actually. Like, I can't. And, you know, also for me, like, at a time I was writing for five publishers. And f- by stepping away from a couple of those, like, now people can take my spot that need a foot in a door like and I started at small presses and you know these were small presses that I walked away from and it's led me to bigger things so knowing that they can have an opportunity to break in like I don't 
want to overwork myself and also hold someone back that could really launch their career. Mm -hmm. So say you're writing four books a year. Yeah. (laughs) How do you, do you, how do you work? Do you write a draft of one, write a draft, revise? Like, do you, is that part of your planning is, you know, do you, do you plot things out? Do you, can you work on two things at once? Like, how do you do that? Well, I never am in two characters heads on the same day. So like if I'm writing, drafting, an Amish candy shop book for Kensington and Penguin wants me to look at edits for an Emily Dickinson book. I have to sleep on it. I can't, my brain can't switch that fast. Um, but I, I wish I could say that I plot, but I don't, I am a pantser a hundred percent. Um, so usually, uh, now I sell, I sell books other than the historical, which I wrote a full proposal for, but the cozies I sell on like, maybe like three sentence little pitch. And so (laughs) I know like for the candy shop, like I know the candy, um, I know what season of the year it is in Ohio and I know what Amish festival it is. And that's all I have. I just know I have to like kill someone and there has to be like, you know, candy corn in the vicinity of the murder or something like that. Uh, so I write probably the first 60 pages just like flat out. And then I get to the done with the first 60 pages. And then I kind of stop and I'll draw like a storyboard and it's just very like broad strokes, like mm-hmm. main character talks to the name of the suspect um, or I'll draw a square and say like something like she needs to be chased or some like there needs to be some kind of excitement right here, you know, to like keep people engaged in the like the muddy middle kind of thing. And um, but really, that's all I'll have. And then I'll keep writing and then. First drafts are usually when I'm on Facebook, like lamenting my life (laughs) because I don't like writing first drafts, but I love revising. Like when the first draft and it's ugly and there's tons of grammatical problems and I'm like, oh, it's done. And I, I can go back to the front. I know who did it. I know why they did it. I know who everyone else that wanted to do it, the murder, but now I can go back and like make it flow. And that's the fun part for me. So I don't even mind getting edits back from my editors. Cause I like revising It's the drafting. I do not like. <laughs> so first draft. And then how many do you revise and then polish or, or how many times do you go through the manuscript before you send it to your agent? Before I send it to my agent, I will go through it like the rough draft and then a whole nother second time and then she'll send it back to me and then I'll go through a whole a third time before I turn it into the publisher sometimes like the Emily Dickinson book because it it was more words and it just had a lot of double things to double check I went through that one like four times before I turn into the publisher Mm -hmm. um so it just depends on the on the book um and how well I know the characters with the candy shop um, the book that came out in August, Peanut Butter Panic, was like the seventh. So this time, by this time, I know what the how that characters are going to react to different situations and who's going to 
I'm like, oh, I need something funny to happen. Like, send in the pig, you know? <laughs> and there's a pop belly polka dotted pig in the series named Jethro that everyone adores. And I was like, gotta get Jethro on the page. I haven't seen Jethro in a hundred pages. Get him on there. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> and how many series are you working on right now? Right now it is four. So I'm writing um, for Kensington. I write the Amish Candy Shop and the Amish Matchmaker, um, which is a spinoff of the Candy Shop. Same world, same town, but um, the Candy Shop has like uh, English non-Amish protagonists and the Matchmaker has a 68-year-old Amish widow as a protagonist. Um, and then I write the Farm to Table series for Source Books, which is an organic cherry orchard in Michigan, which Michigan is not too far from Ohio. And I just think, I know it's not super popular in Ohio, but Michigan is a gorgeous state. If you ever get a chance to go there, it's like all the lakes, and especially this time of year in October, it's just beautiful. So I wanted to set something there. And then the Emily Dickinson one, that's the historical set in the 1850s. So those are the four that I'm working on and, you know, there might be another one being added to the mix. So I don't know. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> right. right. And, and so typically with your cozies, your three cozies, it's like nine months to a year mm -hmm. to write a book. And I'm, do you, does Emily Dickinson give you, do you have like, is it a year between books or? Yeah. So the Emily Dickinson, I do have a year between books. Um, and then the cozy, the cherry orchard for source books, the farm to table, they give me a year between books just because of my schedule, which is really nice for them. Um, and then because my agent and I had a conversation with Kensington, I have a year between those books for each series. So there's two Kensington books a year. And that has really made my life easier because yeah, I can imagine because cozies when I started, you're just so excited to have a contract. You're like, yeah, I can write a book in like six months. And then that one comes out and I have to, you know, like three months yeah. and they come out really fast. Um, but I've gotten to the point that publishers are like, okay, you, you need more time. We'll give it to you. So I'm, I'm really grateful for that. Which is great. Yeah. So do you believe in writer's block or how do you work through writer's block? I don't, I mean, I believe in it because if it's true for someone, it, it's true. Like there are people that may really feel like I can I do. I can't write. I've never had it personally, um, and I've been stuck. But the way that I get through it is, I think it helps that I don't outline. I don't write in chronological order, which my husband in particular thinks is hilarious. So I'll be writing and I'll get stuck, and I'm like, oh well, it's three days later, and now we're, you know, do, 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 and I'll jump. So like one of the things I do before I send that first rough draft to my agent is I have to look at the book and like I'm literally cutting and pasting chunks and then like making some nice transition instead of just this plot dropped out of you know space. So the fact that like I don't think chronologically like as a person either helps me just to be okay with yeah. getting stuck and being like, well, all right, I'm stuck there. But if I figure this out, then that'll be figured out. And then also like I love my preference is always to be outside and we own we, we own a farm. So like if I'm just 
not just stuck, but I'm just feeling like kind of everyone has low points when they're writing. I'm just feeling down about it. I'll go outside and do something around the farm or pet my cats. (laughs) Do you write on in Word or do you write in Scrivener? I write in Word. Um, I, I admire people that have learned Scrivener and they like really embraced it. But I think by the time it came out, I was too set in my ways of how I operated. And I think also it might be too logical for me. It is too organized for me. Um, Like uh, I went on like a a little mini book tour with my friend Annalie Huber last week um, to support my, because I could not stop for death coming out. And we're just like always laughing, like, cause she's like so organized and like, I'm just like, wow. You know, like, <laughs> and like, she, she's sending me these like emails about like, oh, you know, where do you want to eat and stuff? And, you know, usually when my husband and I go on vacation, we're like, I don't you know, like we're just driving, you know, like we, we don't even have our hotel booked. Like I do it on the app on the, like on the way there. So like, um, you know, like it just it cracks me up, like how there's really no right way to write. You know, everyone says that, like you have to find your way. And my way's a little messy, <laughs> to be honest. So do you ever cut and paste in Word and lose things? I mean, that would be if you don't write chronologically and you're cutting and pasting, that would be my fear is I would like, lose words. Yeah, I, I, I never have... I always have like kind of like a dump file open as well. So I have a like if I'm writing and I, I find a section that I wrote and I'm like, I have no idea where this goes. I will cut it so I can keep the, you know, the revision flowing and put it in a separate file and save it there. And I just call it ex- for excerpts for candy shop number eight or something like that. And then sometimes I use those and sometimes they just go there to die. <laughs> like, and I never see them again. Um, so I, you know, I've been, there's been a few times, like, you know, you have that, like my computers crash and that every writer has those stories. Yeah. Um, but I'm pretty like adamant about, you know, I don't really have a fancy way of saving my books other than every hour. Or so I email it to myself. Plus I save it, but like, just in case the computer decides to go kaput, like at least it's out, you know, being saved somewhere. (laughs) No, it's smart. It's smart. Whoa. Um, What's the best piece of writing advice you've ever gotten or, or, or that you give? I mean, you already said find your way, which is a great one. Well, the best that I got was when I always say when I was a baby author. So it was probably... Um, my first book came out in 2010, so it was probably 2010. And I don't remember, I met, um, Heather Weber for the first time. So she writes, she wrote Cozy's Forever and Ever. And then now she writes magical realism books that are really amazing. Um, but she, the funny thing is I was talking to her about this later. She doesn't remember saying this to me, but she said, always be working on something new because you don't know how the industry is going to change. And I really took that to heart. And especially as a young author, you know, until I got some traction really with Kensington, they are the ones that have been 
so supportive for me, really invested in me. Um, but before that, it was like three books canceled, three books canceled, you know, two books canceled <laughs> or a publisher went out of business or, you know, like it was just and mm-hmm. I just always had to keep, you know, kind of like, OK, that was, you know, like, let's let's wallow a little bit and like get back on the horse and figure this out. Um, so that like I would always think about that quote when something would happen, I would get canceled or um you know, I also was like one of the fatalities of the merger of Berkeley and Obsidian, you know, years and years ago. Um, I'm very happy to be back with Berkeley again, but, you know, that's just one of those things that happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and it really stuck with me because instead of like getting mad about it or I mean, I would be sad, but I never I never got angry when something like that happened because I was just so grateful that like, oh my gosh, like I'm like, I'm writing, like I have, like, I'm, I'm really doing this and people are reading my books. And now I just have to build on that series that got canceled and sell the next one and sell the next one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's, um, that's because the detours and the bumps, the publishing journey and the writing journey are two different journeys. So Absolutely. that's great advice. Do you think you'll ever write in a different genre? Do you think, I mean, I, I heard you what you said about dark, but do you think you'll ever write suspense or, you know, a thriller that isn't dark, but is, you know. You know, it's always possible. I don't really see myself leaving crime fiction or mystery. Right. Um, but I did write, it's a, such a funny thing. I got um, asked to write um, a short story for an anthology called Hotel California um, and it has like Heather Graham in it and Andrew Child wrote a Jack Reacher story. And then they asked me to write like a hard hitting story. And I was like, what? Like, <laughs> have you not seen the pig? Like there's a pig on every cover of the, you know, the Amish kidney shop. So that was a really, that was a real stretch for me. Um, and I would say like, you know, I've read all the stories of the book. Mine is definitely not one of the more graphic ones. Um, it's it's a little, um, it's just not as graphic as the others. Yeah. And there's certain issues I won't, like, I don't want to write about because they're too dark for me, like rape and things like that. I just don't want to mm-hmm. go there. And some of those stories had those aspects in them. But so I would never say never. I think, um I've been pleasantly surprised that like people who've read my story in this anthology who probably have never heard of me before because they're like Jack Reacher fans or something like that. Um, You know, I've had a couple of reviews saying like my story is one of their favorites. I was like, really? Really? Like that's that's really cool. But that's not something when I started, I would have even considered like so it's possible. Um but I'm really happy with the cozy and historical. Like I said, I'll, I'll always write cozy, even if I like, you know, if all the cozies got canceled in all the world, like God forbid from myself and all my friends, because most of my friends are cozy writers. Um, like I probably would still write them and self-publish them because I love them that much. And, um, and I think yeah. they really, I've gotten during the pandemic, I got so many emails, so many like really touching comments 
on my Facebook from people that were just like in the pits of despair and saying like, I, you, I read your books and I got through this, like, and, mm-hmm. um, and that's why we do it. Like yeah. to make people happy and give them escapism and joy. So I would never abandon that genre for that reason. <laughs> I love that. Um, can you just talk a little bit about community, you know, Sisters in Crime and other organizations and what the writing community has meant for your journey? Because we so often think we need to do this solo and you don't. I mean, yeah. you can meet people. Yeah. So um, when I got my first book deal, um, it was in 2008. I was 28 years old. It didn't come out for a couple years because I was a debut author. But in that two years, you know, I knew, I, I knew very little of sisters in crime. Like I, I was a national, like I had a national membership and, um, I was a member of guppies, but I wasn't super active on it. Cause I just was kind of overwhelmed with the number of emails <laughs> that came in and I was working full time and that kind of whole thing. Um, but I found, um, I was working in a library in Amish country and I moved back to the Cleveland area, um, to take care of my mom who was really sick. And they had just started a chapter in Northeast Ohio for sisters in crime. And so I joined right when it started and that those group of women, and now we have a couple of misters in crime, um, in our group were so supportive, um, Casey Daniels, who also writes as Kylie Logan and Shelly Costa, mm-hmm. um, uh, Janie and Trusillo and Julianne Lindsay. These are all people that were in that group and Carrie Dubill. Um, and they've been so supportive. We're so supportive of each other. Um, there's, you know, as some of us have gotten more successful and some of us feel like we're still not where we want to be, like it's, there's never any like jealousy or mm-hmm. anything like that. It's just like, so like I had a, a tea party to launch the series and a, you know, a lot of those people came, um, it just mean, meant so much to me. And like, they were more than willing to tell me everything they knew when I was a baby author. Like, you need to go to Malice. Like, you know, that was like the first thing I was told. You need to do this. You need to do that. Um, And honestly, if they hadn't told me that, my first book was nominated for an Agatha. I don't think I, because I went the year before um, to Malice, before my book came out, because they were like, you Mm -hmm. have to go and I was able to pass out bookmarks and, you know, meet people and stuff. I don't think I would have been nominated if they hadn't told me you need to go this year because your book comes out next year. So mm-hmm. and that really that nomination really launched my career, honestly. And then, of course, the community at Malice is like amazing and um, just like drew and love and people like that that are so supportive of the genre and they generally care about you. Um, mm-hmm. as a person, not just, you know, sometimes I think as an author and if you write a lot, you do kind of feel like I'm just a machine that's <laughs> like pushing out stories, you know, like, but it, you know, like you're really affecting people and making a difference and they care. Um, so like I would say to anyone that you may be listening to this, that you're like on the fence about joining your local chapter. Like I know a lot of people are in national but the local chapter is where it made a difference for me. 
big time. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's great advice. Amanda, what a great conversation um, and far reaching and so inspiring and four books a year. Uh, <laughs> keep going. And thank you. I will. <laughs> um, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. I had so much fun. It was wonderful to see you again. Thank you for being with us today. Sisters in Crime is about community. We were founded to advocate for women crime writers, and we continue that mission by fighting for equity in the crime writing community. Sisters in Crime is an international, inclusive organization for all who write and love crime fiction, mystery, thrillers, and suspense. Join us at sistersincrime.org and make sure you subscribe to this podcast.